0: Girls5eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories.
1: I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2.
0: Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 187 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented and enigmatic artists working in Hollywood. A guy who is just 39, but already has tried everything, including drama and comedy, film and TV, multiple graduate programs and a PhD program, writing a novel and starring on a soap opera, hosting the Oscars, and the list goes on. Picking up, along the way, a Golden Globe for the 2001 TV movie James Dean and a Best Actor Oscar nomination for 2010's 127 Hours, and now doing some of the best work of his career playing twins in 1970s New York on HBO's The Deuce, two of the eight episodes of which he also directed, and giving one of his most acclaimed performances yet as Tommy Wiseau, the wacky guy behind the 2003 cult film The Room, in the new film The Disaster Artist, James Franco. But first, I sat down at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter with one of the funniest guys in show business, an actor best known for playing Job Bluth on Arrested Development and for voicing the title character on BoJack Horseman, who most recently voiced Bruce Wayne and Batman for last February's blockbuster animated feature, The Lego Batman Movie, Will Arnett. All right, Will, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We are going to obviously in a moment talk about Lego Batman, but first I want to talk about what everyone's talking about in Hollywood at the moment traffic. St- well, <laughs> right that, you're going to say traffic? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not from the stage of the Academy's Governor's Awards, the honorary Oscars ceremony they had this weekend, where people have been remarking it was strange that this did not come up, but obviously what I'm talking about is the still growing sexual abuse scandal here that's engulfed Hollywood. And I just wonder, you know, particularly as the. The most recent person to be caught up in this is somebody that I would imagine you've crossed paths with in the comedy world, Mister CK. I just wonder what you make of all this, but particularly this last week.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's sadly, it's alarming at best to see this kind of this pattern, and you know, one can only hope that through all of this, that the people who are committing whether they be crimes or transgressions or whatever that that those issues are dealt with and those people are dealt with appropriately and that we kind of root out that kind of behavior. And I guess it's kind of sad to think that it was something that that appears to be kind of prevalent. It's like somebody said on Twitter the other day, hey, good morning. Everybody you know is a monster. Right. <laughs> now they're
0: doing a thing. Can you say, you know, find a celebrity that you have something nice to say about because yeah. they're
2: running out? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, sadly, what seems to be happening, and you even look in the political sphere, is there is a, I guess there, there has been historically a pattern of men discriminating against women, whether it be actually, in the in the most extreme with regards to assault, mm-hmm. and then on the less extreme, but just you know, but but also terrible harassment, yeah. and that is very unfortunate. And I guess we all hope, as a people, not just as somebody who works in this industry but just as a citizen we hope that this starts to shed a light on it and i think that's the good in it It, is i'm I'm trying i've been trying to look at the good in it which is that it's going to start to open it up and and anytime you shine a light on problems like this it can be in the end a good thing but it's you know yeah it's deeply troubling
0: it's hard to understand isn't it that you know we we had him on this podcast. He's a very smart guy, very yeah, funny guy. Obviously, of course. how does somebody who can function so highly in some ways allow this to happen? Because it's not only him, obviously. It's a whole lot of people.
2: Yeah, I, I really don't know, and I I think that there's there's a psychological element. There were stories on CNN, etc., where they're saying like, what what does that mean? This kind of behavior. What does that say? What is going through this person's mind as they do things like that? And and you. Boy, I don't know. I, You know, I, I certainly, I don't have a degree in psychology. I don't even have a degree, Scott. <laughs> so, okay. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a dumb guy. But, you know, who the fuck knows, man? I guess the one thing that, that you hope is, you hope that in this, you don't throw out some good people with bad people right, too. Right, And that's the one thing that's troubling that you see. But, you know, again, I, I really don't know. And I, I think that there's just sort of more information to come and... I hope that we take the appropriate action and that the people who have committed certainly crimes, but even who have been bullies and who have been guilty of these things, are I hope they're taken care of. But it's uh, its confusing. We're not going to harp on this the whole
0: time, but I do want to ask you for your take on one other side of this, which is that, you know, I wonder about these efforts to pretend that some of these people never existed, if that, what you make of it. Because I, I think it's one thing to replace for instance, as Netflix has done, like the icon of House of Cards is now not Kevin Spacey. It's Robin Wright. Fine. Right. Whatever. Right. But I think this idea that, you know, we're going to remove everything Louis C.K. has ever done from HBO oh, or like some scrub of this other it. stuff. Scrub it. It's like it kind of reminds me of how things were after 9-11, where it's like somehow by digitally removing the Twin Towers from movies, that's going to make things better. I, I don't know that I buy into that. And I think that. Just don't watch his stuff if if you don't if you disapprove, that's fine. but the idea that we're gonna hide it or make it unavailable or whatever now that you know they've pulled his newest movie, I understand maybe because there would have been a direct profit for him from that or something. but i I'm a little conflicted about this idea of just hiding
2: everything Well, the I, think, did. I don't know the circumstances surrounding the the removal of his film and, and denying him profit. I suspect it probably has more to do with whatever that company is getting backlash. I think that there's a A rush to, it's not about being right, it's about how quickly you can be right. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, you make the analogy to 9-11, which I remember somebody saying, you never make that analogy, yeah, but okay. Right. <laughs> uh, because you're, wait, here you go, right. Scott. People well, are gonna be like, how dare you? No. Hollywood elite Scott Feinberg <laughs> making, you know, analogy to 9-11. However, you've opened the door, so I'm just going, sure. so I'm, this is on you. Um, <laughs> but if you think about how funny that is, is the the sort of the moniker to come out of 9-11 is never forget. Mm-hmm. And yet, like you said, they people went, to great lengths to make sure that we not necessarily forget but don't see right. and hopefully forget Yeah, and I think you're right I think the mistake would be to try to pretend that this is not happening kind of the putting your fingers in your ears and closing your eyes or if
0: the person never existed and I that mean, they never
2: existed is you're exactly right I think that you're right also in that if you don't like it you don't have to sit through it, but and I'm we glad can't that, pretend.
0: Like, Netflix is not, I'm, I'm glad it looks like house of cards is going to go on without him because that's the other thing. There's a lot of collateral damage that can happen from this. You, you work on a Netflix show and other things, you know how many people are involved with this. Why should they have to suffer? Because one idiot, you know, did some, some terrible things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly true. And I think that that's what I meant also about the good guys being with the bag. That's what I mean is like that. You see people suffer, I saw reports, of, and they would say, "Well, so and so, you know, they they kind of name somebody who is tangentially involved with, sort of five people removed from somebody who had right. committed something through a management company, or whatever, and they also worked with him on blah 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 way down the line." I'm like, "What does that have to do with what some guy did 15 years right. ago in a closed room? That person wasn't anywhere near that. What? How is that their fault?" It's a raw time, I mean. But I guess, it is a raw yeah. time, and I think that everybody's trying to make sense of it. Yeah. So I, I try to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Like, right. everybody's feeling raw, and they're reacting to something that is abhorrent or reprehensible or whatever, and so that's their initial reaction, and I you know, certainly don't want to deny anybody that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess at times like this, comedy,
0: particularly from people who haven't done terrible things, is more welcome than ever. And so I wanted to talk to you about a movie that came out very early in this year, but Remains one of the best reviewed movies of the year. I think it's at 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, made a fortune at the box office, 312 million worldwide. And that is the Lego Batman movie, which is the spinoff of the 2014 Lego movie, which introduced you as Batman. Now you have your own animated spinoff. And I just wonder let's even go back before either of those movies. Voice acting is something that's been a part of your life since you were like in your 20s, right? Yeah. How did that become clear that that was a, a big talent of
2: yours? Well, I, I think I pointed out a few minutes ago, I'm not a very bright guy. And, and, um, <laughs> and you're, you're starting to get the, the picture. But, you know, early on as a young actor in New York, I, I was trying to make a living. And, and I went into my first agency at William, what was then just William Morris. And they said, oh, while you're here, you should meet the people in the voice over department. And I was like, well, what's that? And they're like, have you ever thought about the voices that you hear like on a commercial? And I thought, oh, right yo, that's a thing, <laughs> you know, and it,
0: did you uh, have this voice then? It's always been very gravelly. I mean, uh, uh, t- yeah, yeah. A version of it yeah. for sure. Yeah.
2: I don't know how it sounds today. Last week I was like not well, which was like the first time in a couple of years I was not well, thank right. God yeah, yeah, going through all the Lego stuff. Yes. Cause that really sets you back. But yeah, I always had a version of this and my dad has kind of a version of this. His Big joke, which is hilarious, is that if something happens to me, he can just do take over for me. <laughs> Are you a smoker though, or something? What is it? You have a really gravelly voice. I have voice. been on and yeah, off for yeah, sure, yeah. but no. But my dad never smoked a day in his yeah. life, and it was just one of those things, you know, that I kind of inherited. I'm sure that smoking on and off over the years added to it, added some gravel. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I made my living for many years as a voiceover actor in New York. You know, selling products, and I really did everything. Yeah. And and for a number of years, when I wasn't getting as much straight acting work. That was my primary source of income. And it actually is a yeah, very well, lucrative. Right? Yeah.
0: I had maybe 10, 12 years ago I interviewed Don LaFontaine oh, before he no passed away. It was amazing because really? this, this is the godfather of voice acting,
2: right? Or not even voice acting, but voiceovers. Voiceovers. So Don LaFontaine was. Back in about 1997, he did an interview with The New York Times where he talked about his daily routine and he revealed how much money he made. Yeah And I remember going to a voiceover a casting place in New York called Just Voices that might still be there mm-hmm. on 40th Street. And you know, at that time there were there were probably 15, 20 guys. Who were doing the bulk of the commercial. Mm-hmm. California, LA was all promos, mm-hmm. New York was all commercial work. And there were about 15-20 guys who did the bulk of it. And you knew everybody yeah. because you'd have anywhere from you know five to eight auditions a day plus sessions. So you'd see them at studios, you'd right. see them at the same dudes. And I remember walking in this guy, Paul Christie, who's an excellent yeah. voiceover actor, walked in with the New York Times and he slammed it down on the table and he goes, That's it, it's over. And we all looked, and it was the Don LaFontaine interview, and he was kind of right. Once Don gave that interview, it seemed like overnight everybody's like, hey, I want to be a voiceover actor. I can come in and read for it, and uh, I'll just make money. You know, you're like, so interesting. Yeah. And then the the SAG commercial strike in 2000 kind of really solidified that. It it really split it apart, and and a lot of companies started to use a lot of non-union talent.
0: There's a thing that I've also seen. I think it was the Clio Awards where they got all the guys, like those probably the people you're talking about, sort of the all-stars, the guy who did the Disney trailers, the guy who did all these – Don, who actually, I think, always went around in a limo, even though, you know, but he they had him picking up each of these other guys, and they're talking to each other in their voices, and it was pretty great, but I mean, it raised awareness about the fact that this exists.
2: Well, it was, and so, actually, it's funny, so I was out here in California during the commercial strike, and I I was doing some promo work, because I was out here, and just trying to get as much work as I could, and Don, at that time, was you know, he, he's passed away, and yeah. he, but he was in the first kind of stages of being quite ill. Mm-hmm. So I remember they said he kind of cut back on a lot of his work. And they said that CBS needed people to do some of the promo stuff. Mm-hmm. So I went in and I read and I started picking up a little bit of work at really? CBS. Yeah, And it was at the old, which they still own, where they shoot court in the, the yeah, television uh, city. Yeah. In the basement right near where they, they shoot Price is Right, yeah. they've got a bunch of recording booths. Where they cut all the promos all day really? and all night for all the shows, yeah. And so I remember walking in there, and I spent about six months splitting time with Ashton Smith, who's another big time voiceover and big trailer guy. He's got an awesome voice. Oh. All his stuff is kind <laughs> of like this intense whisper. This summer, and I can't even do it because he, he's so good at it, and he's got. It's kind of like I, I find find myself transfixed when I hear his yeah. voice. <laughs> So so Ashton and I, I don't really know him. He and I were picking up Don's stuff. But I remember being really intimidated because in the corner of this booth, they had all the sag after at the time. They had all the sign-in sheets. And you had to, anytime you do a spot, you would have to fill in your financial right. information, your your union stuff and whatever, so they could bill you for it. And you'd take seven minutes to yeah. fill it out, whatever. But next to all those forms were sheet upon sheet of wax paper with stickers. And I, re- I looked, and it was Don LaFontaine's. He didn't even have time to <laughs> fill it out. He just peel- And he'd leave stacks of wax paper stickers in all oh the booths around town, God. peel off a thing, stick it on the thing, and walk out the door. <laughs> That's how much he worked. That's how much he worked. And I was, I was so intimidated by that. It's... You know, I was 30, and I was like, oh, my God, this guy is unbelievable. <laughs> so you were talking
0: about this, this other guy who had the breathy yeah. intro, still has. What were you known for? Gravitas, is that what it is?
2: Well, maybe. You know, what's weird is I started to get my first few accounts were all kind of very corporate They weren't like kind of dude. And I, you know, I was a very, I looked very young for my age. Thanks, Scott. And mm-hmm. I would go in and then I think that my face betrayed where my voice was at. Weirdly, I... Part of me held on to this idea that that's why I didn't get a lot of straight acting work back then is because it was that two didn't match. Didn't match up. Yeah. It, it couldn't not have to do with my my acting skill, <laughs> and that's what I hung on to, right. and I still do, right. I guess. But I would go in and I'd do things like uh, my first account was a, a company out of Boston called Harvard Community Health Plan. <laughs> We're what healthcare should be. <laughs> Meanwhile, I looked like a total right. you know ding dong, right. <laughs> and then and I would I did things Lockheed Martin. AIM investments. You know, I did all these. You're giving uh, them freebies now. I know. You got to charge them. What was the other one I did? I did for a long time, right when I started doing Arrested Development, invest with confidence. (laughs) And it was like a real like, what do you want to do with your investments? And it was all that kind of stuff. So what happens when Arrested Development comes along and people start to know you
0: as a comedic guy? Does that undermine your ability to, to have gravitas in voiceovers?
2: Maybe a little bit. It probably I don't know if it changed it or not. I mean, you know, at that time, when I when I started working on Arrested Development, I'd already been the voice of GMC Trucks for five years okay. at that point. And we're, yeah, we're coming into our 20th wow. year on GMC Trucks. Yeah. And that's been a great kind of marriage all the way through. And, and they, they never changed. And they were always just really cool and kind of grew with me, which was pretty rad. But I think that, yeah, I think that in terms of like endorsements, People probably wanted me to be like a little bit more rye, you know, (laughs) which is like always a hilarious direction that you'd get for voiceovers.
0: Now, was comedy always something you were gravitating towards even forget about voice acting just as overall as an actor? Or was that a surprise to you that that's how how it started to head?
2: I don't know if it was a surprise. I've always sort of maintained that I fell into comedy backwards, that I was trying to be dramatic and people were laughing at me. But (laughs) I, I, I think that there was... It was something that I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to do it. I had, I had a better head on my shoulders. I probably would have gone to Chicago and and maybe tried going that route, but I didn't. I went to New York, and I was young enough to think that you know that I had something important to say, <laughs> and you know, really, I started reading for comedy in television mm-hmm. and for sitcoms because I needed to. I needed to get a job, mm-hmm. and at the time in the '90s and early 2000s you know they were making a lot of television comedy pilots right for sitcoms yeah. you know every network was making 30 a year or something it's it crazy. was crazy and there was a lot of work and yeah. you could if you got a pilot that could make or break your year yeah. whether it got picked up or not right so animated
0: comedy bojack horseman came along before late in, after late Lego. in the game later so you were doing i guess ratatouille going ratatouille
2: like- but even further you know the first animated comedy sort of animated film that I did was Ice Age 2, I guess. Wow, okay. I kind of came in late in the game and just recorded a session. It was almost like an ADR. But I remember thinking, like, this is a kind of perfect marriage between a bunch of things I'd been doing. I felt very prepared for it. Yeah. And I understood, you know, as a voiceover guy, you, you start to, the more you do it, the more you understand timing and how much how much time you need between breaths, how much, you know, what seven seconds means. You know, I can look at amount of copy and I can tell you whether or not that'll fit in seven seconds or not. Right. That's a fairly standard tag length. And I can say, you know, if you're doing stuff, you can say like, look at it and say, all right, well, that was 7.9 seconds and you need it in in seven. Okay, I could probably do it in, I can probably do that in six, nine Mm -hmm. and then call it out and do it. And like, and it's really kind of, It's because it's something you have to do, you know, be like a guy who moves cars or parts cars like they know the dimension. That's what they do. So
0: as you started to work in several of these animated comedies doing voice work, clearly people responded to you in it. We've had at the moment even Bojack Horseman is a phenomenon that continues on. But let's talk specifically about Lego movie leading into Lego Batman movie, because these have both been. Phenomenal successes.
2: Yeah, and, and it came out of. I will say, just to sort of touch quickly, you mentioned Ratatouille. Ratatouille was a great learning experience for me. Brad Bird is a, a tremendous teacher. He's he's an incredibly creative, obviously, guy. Wow! Breaking news: I said that he's <laughs> Brad Bird's a creative guy. What a dummy! But you know, he is such a talent, and and he taught me so much he, just by he's in the booth with you. He walks you through all the beats. I'd go and do sort of ADR. He'd invite me to, he'd be like, hey, come check out this the scoring because I'd never seen all that process. And, and I learned in a very short amount of time a lot about this process. And it was very, very cool. I I just think he's such a rad guy. And then not long after that, Phil Lord and Chris Miller got in touch with me and said, you were putting together a film for Sony Animation called Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Mm. And my my then wife, Amy, and I were, kind of both on board. And we knew Phil and Chris a little bit through different people. They'd made a pilot with Andy and, and Jorma and, and um, those guys for Lonely Island called Awesome Town that did not get picked up before those boys went on right. to do SNL. And so we were kind of, we we had a bunch of mutual friends. We really loved those dudes. And they were like, we're doing this thing. We were like, great. So we go in, we start recording for Cloudy with Chance of Meatballs. And they had a much darker take initially and a few months in, we kind of got the call that it's it's done, we're out, that Amy and I are out. And Sony decided to kind of, they thought it was too dark and they were going to scrap the entire project. And we got kind of offered up. And they, you know, the art, everything was much darker and they just completely went family fair mm-hmm. and brightened and sweetened and heightened and tightened. And it's like just two totally different mm-hmm. movies. But I remember that was my... I, I was like, oh, what a bummer. That really sucks because we'd already been working on it. I will say one of the great things is my favorite film of all time is With Nell and I, mm-hmm. the great Bruce Robinson film. And, and Phil and Chris, as a as a present, did get me a, uh, a vinyl record of the soundtrack of that, that's which cool. I still have. Yeah. So that's the one good thing <laughs> that came out of that process. <laughs> right. So I was really kind of bummed out. Went on to work on a couple other things, including Monsters vs. Aliens over at DreamWorks, which was a really fun process. And Horton Hears a Who mm-hmm. also, which is really cool because I got to kind of go in there and say, they're like, oh, here's a Vlad, this vulture, and what do you want to do? And kind of made him this Russian dude. Not It was like a huge move or anything, but it was like really fun and got to, they gave me a lot of space to mess around. And then I got a call from my agent. She said, Phil and Chris want to talk to you. And they I, they were pretty funny. They called me and they're, they're literally like, Hey, it's Phil and Chris. Don't hang up. <laughs> we're so sorry about how that went down right. before. We were making the Lego movie. We'd like you to be Batman. And I was, I didn't understand any of that, but I thought, yeah, okay, that sounds cool.
0: Right. And that was, uh, and that was it.
2: And then we went in and we started recording and we were trying to find the voice. We spent probably like most of the first session just kind of figuring out where that voice lived.
0: What was the psychology of it? It's like you're going to play off of the Bale Batman voice.
2: Yeah. Not necessarily just Bale, but the way it was increasingly, the Dark Knight was increasingly taking himself seriously, right? Right. And and it became so, it became almost camp. It was so, he was like almost like emotionless. Right. Let's go, let's go over here, searching, scanning for enemies. <laughs> and it was like, well, wait, he's still Bruce Wayne, right? right? Like, what happened? <laughs> Why did, when he puts the suit on, right. does he talk like that? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, did you figure wait, it out? I don't no, know. <laughs> like two seconds ago, he was just talking totally normally when he was, he was wearing tucks and tails and, and then he put the, the cowl on. He's like, okay, engage. Like what? What's happening? So we thought that was really funny. And also having him speak in that voice, but just in a really mundane dealing with really mundane yes. shit. Yes. It just made us laugh. And and I love the process of working with Phil and Chris because I think they're two of the most brilliant comedic minds that of this particular generation. And they always do stuff that surprises me and that I find super interesting. And making them laugh in the room, there were a few moments and one that, that were they to listen right now, they know what I'm going to say, which was... There's this moment where Batman goes off, and he's in the first movie, and he's and he's, he's going to go and get on the Millennium Falcon, yeah. and he's like, "Listen, if you want to be with me, you have to be cool with my addiction to partying with total strangers." <laughs> it was like this whole monologue about partying with total strangers, right? And it it quite literally, I fell to my knees, and I had tears streaming down <laughs> my face, and I look over, and Phil and Chris, we were all doubled over. They had written it, and I and I was, and I thought. This is we're on to something right. good here.
0: Well and the, it seems like you have a lot of fun beyond even this character sending up narcissism, right? You love playing yeah, a narcissist. I, I, I
2: really do. Okay. I, I, I love it. I, I, I love the combination I always have, I said it a million times, when somebody's really cocky and kinda dumb <laughs> and and super unaware of it. Right. I think it's hilarious. I think that people who are not aware of who they are are really funny. And whether that's a narcissist or whatever it is, when when you see people who refer to themselves in the third person, or you see that they are either A, completely blind to who they are, and or B, they think that we can't see it, it's hilarious to me. And part of me gets outraged when people behave a certain way, and I'm like, why do you think that we don't know what you're doing that makes me insane? Right. So I it has long been something an, an area that I enjoy and that's why you know I've always kind of railed against people who say well you're not, you know you like to play characters that are assholes I'm like no 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 no. I could go back and and we could go through every character I've ever played animated and or otherwise and and I would stand up and I will tell you exactly what I think is wrong with that guy. Most of them I don't think it are asshole. Most of them. Yep. Maybe in Hot Rod, the guy I played in Hot Rod <laughs> was an asshole. But there are, for the most part, these are people who are psychologically damaged. Yeah, And there's a reason. They were unloved or they were passed over or whatever it is. But to me, there's something there. And and there's a disconnect. I freaking love it. Well, Arnett, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure.
0: And now for my conversation with James Franco. Over the course of an unusually candid conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Franco and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. Why he dropped out of college to pursue an acting career, only to return to college and graduate school and a PhD program once he had one. How, in between, his career was launched by the short-lived TV comedy series Freaks and Geeks, the acclaimed TV movie James Dean, and a role in the Spider-Man franchise other than the one for which he auditioned. Why reteaming with his Freaks and Geeks collaborators Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen years after that show went off the air, this time on 2007's Knocked Up and 2008's Pineapple Express, changed his approach to his career and prepared him for his most challenging role yet in 127 Hours. How he has come to and why he has done some of his best work yet as... Wacky characters like those he played in 2012 Spring Breakers and in the aforementioned The Disaster Artist. Plus, much more, including Franco, in character as Tommy Wiseau, answering a telephone call that was placed to a number currently being advertised on a Disaster Artist billboard in Hollywood. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. James, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, good to be here.
0: We always begin just very basic. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living?
1: I was born in Palo Alto, California, in Northern California. And my parents, my dad worked in Silicon Valley, a bunch of companies. He worked at IBM. He worked at Rome. And then he just like, he passed five years ago, but until the end, he had like five billion projects. And I sort of think maybe I I picked up (laughs) that kind of thing from him, maybe part of it. But he was helping, you know, this. Afghani woman, open uh, coffee, you know, in cafes. And uh, he was actually providing relief services for for Afghanistan, mm-hmm. sending medical supplies there for for civilians. And he was part of this weird like company that developed shipping containers uh-huh. that were like safe shipping containers so that they could detect if there was like nuclear material in there or something like that. But the joke among my friends and my brother's friends was always like, is he in the CIA? Because we don't really know <laughs> like what he does. So he could have been in the CIA. And your mom? My mother is a children's book author. And she wrote over 40 children's books and then recently has gone into young adult novels. And right. she has two or three of those out, yeah.
0: So from what I was able to gather reading a lot about you preparing this, it seems like up until even into high school, you were a little bit... Directionless, a little bit of a problem child to some extent, but then I saw that there were a couple of things. It seems like pretty specifically that maybe started to give you a little direction. I read Gus Van Sant movies as one big thing, and then the other thing being a girlfriend getting involved with a with a drama. Yeah, you want to do that? Yeah, stuff? please. Okay.
1: I like every like most thirteen year olds just felt like man, I was out of step. As soon as I went to junior high, it was just like. Oh everybody got the script, but me, like, I don't, you know, I don't know fit in. And so my way of coping is again, as a lot of, you know, kids learn to do is, was just to get in trouble. And, you know, and as a way, you know, you're learning, you're learning like how to socialize, how to, you know, and, and, you know, you have that, I even heard Obama talking about it on some podcast. like, yeah, you had a rebellious, period, you know, yeah. rebellious period, and you're just figuring out who you are. So that's what I was doing. And I got in a, I thought I was the unluckiest kid in Palo Alto, like, because I just, uh, yeah, <laughs> and I was the Palo Alto vigilante, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, from shoplifting to harder things, but eventually I was, I was a, a ward of the court, I didn't belong to my parents, you know, and uh, they'd said, like, you get into, t- you know, jaywalk, or, you know, or whatever, you're going to go to juvenile hall, like, wow. I should have gone to juvenile hall, wow. it's actually in, I wrote a book, Palo Alto, mm-hmm. and then Gia Coppola adapted it. There's actually a scene in there that they use. I, I think I put it in the book. In fact, it's Francis Coppola, Gia's grandfather, I think saying the lines. It's just voiceover. But the judge said to me, look, normally I get kids in here that can't multiply uh, 50 by two, but I see your transcript and you, ha- you have really good grades. My dad was, you know, really promoted school and hard work and all that. And so judge said, I'm going to give you one more chance. Make it ward of the court, but you won't go to Juvenile Hall. And so at that point, I had a girlfriend, but I had to stop hanging out with, you know, some of my friends because I just kept getting into trouble. And it was like, man, what am I gonna do with all my time now that I can't go and party and whatever? And so I really got into art and then I always loved movies. I mean, I had I had watched movies um since a very young age and, you know, started with you know, all the great Spielberg movies. But when I was in high school, I really got into like James Dean Brando and and then Gus Van Sant and River Phoenix. and mm-hmm. And so I wanted to act, but I was, you know, I was scared. I was scared of failure and all those things. But really what I needed was like a push. I needed an excuse, right? And so my girlfriend at the time Jasmine, was asked to do this one act play with <laughs> that was written directed and and co-starred this guy, Yoav Fisher, who I know, I, I just went back to my 20th, I, I gave this whole, I, I told this whole story really? at my 20th you, you know, year <laughs> reunion. And then Yoav, I think lives in Israel now and is like, he's actually a, a writer, I think. And he asked of all people, my girlfriend Jasmine to be in this thing. And I think I got into my mind that it was like a romantic play. I never saw it, but that they were gonna be kissing in it and stuff and I begged her not to do it. <laughs> and she rightly, you know, did it and didn't listen to me and at the time I thought I was jealous because they were going to be kissing on stage and all that. I realize now in hindsight I was jealous because he was doing everything I wanted to do. <laughs> he was writing the thing, he's directing the thing, he's acting in the thing. Like those were all the things that I wanted to do. That's what I was jealous right. of. And so I in my mind I thought, well, all right, I'll show them. I'll join the, I'll join the drama class. And that was the burr under the saddle that I needed to get me going. And I guess I had some talent or they just didn't have a lot of people in the drama class (laughs) or whatever, but I got the leads in the, in the last two productions of my senior year. One was Vojtsek by George Buchner, a very strange play where the character, you know, actually ends up murdering his wife because she cheats on him (laughs) and that's when I discovered like not that I wanted to murder Jasmine but like how to channel these feelings and it was like and I think I did have a knack for it it was just like it felt I'm sure I wasn't great but it felt right it felt like a fit you know I, I, I there was some some raw kind of Talent or connection to, to acting, even then, and then one of the teachers adapted Dostoevsky's The Idiot, and I played Prince Mishkin. and that was the that was the beginning. Awesome. From what I understand,
0: you go off to college UCLA, and after a year though, you're you're done with it. I guess to pursue this now full time, you were you were into it, and so how did your folks feel about that decision? And what were those first couple of years in the real world? like for you without, as I understand it, their financial support. They weren't very thrilled that you were yeah, leaving yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, Okay, we're covering it all. We're here. covering okay, it. Okay, okay.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, a, it was a very important moment. My main focus actually at the end of high school when I stopped getting in trouble was art, actually. And so I wanted to go to art school. I wanted to go to RISD, which I actually did end up doing like years later. Yeah. Like very delayed reaction to yeah. not getting to go. And my parents had gone to Stanford. They had met at Stanford. My dad actually wanted me to go into mathematics and it kind of turned on him because he that was the one thing he like tutored me in all through high school and i was in all the ap math Mm -hmm. you know calculus classes and so by the time i was taking the placement exams at ucla I tested out of having to do any math classes. And so I never took a math class again after <laughs> high school. And the the compromise was that if I didn't go to art school and I went to just a regular university that I wouldn't have to study math, that I could study literature. So I went to UCLA to study English literature. When I got to LA, you know, i have been getting into acting, i been interested in acting, but I, in Palo Alto, there just wasn't... You know, there wasn't the same kind of awareness. Now, in most high schools, there's, like, the AV club and all that. Like, that was very rudimentary when I was, you know, when I was coming up. And all we really had were the stage plays. I had no idea how people got into movies. or I just I just didn't have a concept of, you know, auditioning or whatever. Like, I remember watching, like, as a kid, like, stand by me and just thinking, like, oh, those kids were born into it. Like, <laughs> it's too late for me at right. age 13. Like, it's too late, you know. Right. And then when I got to UCLA, there was an actor in my dorm who was on that Sybil Shepherd show, Sybil.
0: Yeah.
1: And suddenly it started like, oh, there's actually a path. There's like actions you can take to pursue a career. And like, as I started, started expanding my world in LA, it was like, I started realizing, wow, half the city like works in the entertainment industry and all that. And I thought, Oh, I was taking these classes in like Milton class. And, you know, and stuff. So I was just thinking like, you know, because what, what I wanted to do in, in literature was write. And there were these creative writing classes, but it was like you had to apply to those. And everybody like from freshmen to the seniors had to, you know, they were the same sort of application pool. And it was like, I'm never going to get into these now. I just felt like I was on the the real slow track right. at UCLA. And then I also wasn't in, I hadn't applied for the drama program. And I went and inquired and they're like, you can't even apply until you're a junior. So two years to an 18 year old is like an eternity. And I was like, oh man, I I gotta do something now. And so I took like this extracurricular acting class that met above at like the second floor of the pool house (laughs) at the rec center at at UCLA. And I met a, a woman there, Renata was her name, And she was actually in the drama program and I guess wasn't getting enough out of the drama program at UCLA. Because I later learned, like, they have this whole weird thing, like, you actually don't even get that many acting classes. They, like, use those students for, like, you know, labor. It's, like, forced labor. Like, you have to, like, build sets and, like, work the box office at the plays and stuff like that. And if you don't get cast in a play, like, you don't get to act for years. And she was grumbling about that. And I was like, well, I I heard about this school in the valley called playhouse west um let's go audit that it was the only acting school of all the acting schools in la that i even heard about yeah. you know and so we went over there and it was like far from where we were and i didn't have a car and she became my ride and we started going there and after a year at ucla sort of holding on and you know failing my milton class because like i just wouldn't fall in the truck, like Actually, jumping ahead, like I'd gone back to UCLA years later and I remember my Milton teacher, this Professor Jonathan Post, he became my teacher later and actually became a a friend. But I remember when I had him when I was a freshman, getting these questions about Milton, like, you know, explain, you know, whatever, how the devil tempts Eve or something like Mm -hmm. that. I like wrote a short story or something. I just was not following the program. Right. right? Right. I, I would even at that point. I remember it was it's so embarrassing now. I was going to acting school. And UCLA at the same time at one point, and I would show up at UCLA in like costumes. <laughs> it was so imba- it was like I was like a twelve. I like what was I doing? Like <laughs> I'd show up like in like a cowboy outfit or like or I'd use these. You know, I was starting to like want to work to work on my accents. I I use accents in class and stuff like that. <laughs> and then I'd meet people with these accents around UCLA too, and they. Some of people, I felt for them. I feel sorry for them that they'd fall for like these horrible like <laughs> Irish accents or something. But other people just probably thought I was just the weirdest guy ever.
0: But in fact, when you finally pulled the plug on UCLA and we're going to just focus full time on playoffs. Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 no but no, 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 no. But it goes into your what you're talking about now because, as I understand it, if you're going to be going to acting class full time and your parents aren't going to be financially supporting you, you gotta get another job. You did.
1: This is a big lesson because I, I I run into a lot of guys that I try to give advice to and people that, you know, want to get into acting and stuff like that. I left school and I wanted to go to acting school full time and my parents were not happy with that. And and my dad especially was not happy. And and he used the words this is how I remember it. He I remember some one holiday, like we were going somewhere, we were sitting together next to each other on a plane, and he's like, let's talk about this whole dropout thing. And and I was like, okay. And he's (laughs) like, you know, you're, you're being a fool. And that, you know, at 18 or 19, that just like, hit my heart, you know, it just struck me like a thunderbolt. And it really stuck and on top of that they said you know we're not gonna support you financially if you don't go to you know college and so at that moment i just thought all right well then i have to do this thing on my own and so a couple things happened around that time it was like my acting teacher in a way became my artistic father both in a good way and a bad way, you know what I mean? I, I kind of. Yeah, I kind of leaned on him a little too much, but he taught me a lot of things. You know, he I, I think after like seven years, that, eight years at that school, he really things he taught me were how to be completely in the moment when I'm acting, which is a very key thing and how to just be relaxed in a part. and also how to prepare for a part because he took me step by step through preparing for James Dean. And that, and I've used those, those skills. And it's basically, like, if you just boil it down, it's like, how do you... Because with that part in particular, it's not just the inner life of the character. The outer life is equally as important, you know, because he's so recognizable. He's so iconic. The behavior is so familiar. And pe- anybody can just go watch his movies and see how he looked and sounded and moved. And so... I needed to capture that, but then do it in such a way that it was backed up by all the inner life and what, you know, what pushed him to be this way and what motivated him and, you know, losing his mother and then being sent away by his father to Indiana to be raised by his aunt and uncle and all those things and how to kind of wed those two things, the inner and outer in such a way so that it doesn't become a caricature But it also is the recognizable, you know, guy that everybody knows, the legend. And Carnegie really gave me that. The thing I always give, the advice I I give to guys that want to get into, you know, a creative field is you got to support yourself, right? It's so key, you know, because it's like you were in L.A., you run into so many people. And sort of one of the messages, weird messages of my movie, The Disaster Artist, like... There's a certain energy that, you know, happens, you know, when you become an adult and you take care of yourself, something happens. And I've just, see, I've just seen it so many times over and over again. And I don't think it's, it's not magical thinking. It's that you become responsible for yourself. And if you are taking care of yourself, the, you know, the creative thing that you're trying to do becomes so much more valuable to you. And you're not leaning on someone or begging someone else. You know, it's like you're doing it and, you, and you're and you really saying to yourself, I want to do this. So I had to take care of myself and I went around to all the rest. I still didn't really have a car. And so I went around to all the restaurants. I was living in Sherman Oaks in the area that I could walk to to see if I could get a waiting job. And I just had, I had very little work experience. I was this 18-year-old that didn't even really know how to like, dress or brush his hair and so nobody hired me all the all the other actors got those the best waiting jobs and somebody said to me are you too good to work at McDonald's and I was like you know I want this thing so badly I want to be an actor so badly no I'm not too good to work at McDonald's. And I went into McDonald's and they hired me on the spot.
0: And you were doing drive through and yeah. doing accents during, during it, right? Exactly. So that, I mean, exactly. I think it's a
1: great story. Exactly. And I worked there two or three months. And then I booked a, a commercial for Pizza Hut. And I could support myself from my acting from that point on.
0: Okay. So you mentioned the James Dean TV movie, which I think kind of put you on the map for a lot of people. Ended up with a Golden Globe and an Emmy nomination. But the things that just immediately preceded that, just to connect the dots, you just referenced the TV commercial, I think that was, and Pizza Hut, that was for the Super Bowl. So now, as a result of that, you can not feel as much financial pressure, right? Right. Then Freaks and Geeks, which people now remember and love, but at the time, I guess you guys lasted only 18 episodes. And And
1: it was not even on the air all that time. I mean, it was crazy. Like, they... I think it was, like, the third or fourth episode. The the episode that, like, really introduced Busy Phillips' character. They didn't air because they thought it was, like, too, you know, controversial because they showed her, like, dysfunctional family. And then for a while it was off the air. And so, yeah, it was a weird feeling sometimes, like, being on set and, and just not knowing if it was would ever see the light of day. I think Judd had the foresight, you know. I think... He he was going through a lot, you know, that I wasn't aware of at the time. Like, I didn't know how important this show was to him until afterwards and hearing all these interviews and, you know, how I knew it was sort of personal for him and Paul Feig and that the, the geeks were sort of really based on them and their childhoods. But it was so new to me. It was the first quality thing that yeah. I ever did. Yeah. So I kind of just assumed like, oh, every project's like this, you know, like, well, and to that point,
0: you, from what I read, something Paul said, you treated it as seriously as you ended up treating James Dean. He, here's a quote I want to listeners to hear from Paul. Quote, after we did the pilot for Freaks and Geeks, I was sitting in my office one day and I get a call. It's Franco. And he's at my old high school in Michigan doing research <laughs> on my community, on my school. He puts on one of my old teachers on the phone. How often do you meet someone that dedicated? Close quote. So even back then, you were diving a thousand percent into things That show, unfortunately, I don't think was, it just seems like it was almost destined that people would have to discover it later on.
1: Well, the funny thing now is like, I don't know if it's just with the streaming or whatever, but like, I see a lot of these shows that I love, like I love American Vandal. I love, you know, Stranger Things and they definitely are like children or like, you know, nephews of uh, yeah. freaks and geeks. Yeah. And I think it was just before its time, yeah. you know.
0: And everybody who was involved with it, look at all the great things they've gone on to do. Yeah. So that leads into James Dean. You had already, as you say, been a James Dean kind of obsessive in the yeah. best way. Now you're on the map as a result of that. Then I think it's kind of interesting because you have your, like I guess if there are important moments along the way, with Spider-Man 2002, as I understand it, you went out for, Peter Parker, you ended up playing the best friend Harry. How different would life have been if you had gotten Peter Parker, and had to be the face of a whole franchise and all this? As it turns out, I mean, and also when you didn't get that, how did you wind up still being a part of it?
1: So are we we're skipping over James Dean and we're going to well, if, you, if there's
0: more you want us to talk about, I would love to talk about.
1: Sure, no, that was a major one, but no, that's I, okay, we, no, 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 it's okay. I just want to talk a really like brief little thing yeah. about that preparation. One of the things, and this was sort of a thing that I came to grips with and figured out 10 years after I started acting. But one of the things that kind of made me want to go into, you know, directing and and writing and doing other things is I had learned how valuable preparation could be. And, you know, you know, as a writer, like it's great to go out and, and, and get all this, you know, great material. And then as a writer, yeah, you have an editor, but you get to sort of start shaping it. As a younger actor, I was generally signing on to projects late in the game. The script was there, the director was there, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, and I could contribute. And certainly on something like Freaks and Geeks, they were so smart about how they did that because they really wrote to the actors, and that was that was brilliant. And, and it was an early lesson that I didn't quite grasp as I was doing it, but later really learned from. And then on James Dean... That's like I said, where I really learned how to like just go overboard with research, mm-hmm. and fortunately, I had a great director in that Mark Rydell who could embrace that, could could s- see how much I had done and adjust and allow all of that research to come into the movie, and mm-hmm. and also like a great sort of conductor could shape it, could say, oh, you did, okay, oh, that's great, oh, you've got that side of Jimmy let's put that over here in the you know and that was very satisfying and it paid off so then i just thought okay that's how i do it and i learned sometimes i was i was frustrated because i would go and do 8 months of preparation and research and find oh i wasn't in sync with the director and like we just have different ideas about it i should have been in sync all along in the preparation and so now this research that I've done, preparation that I've done, can't quite be used, right?
0: Annapolis, Tristan and Soul, <laughs> Flyboys. I, 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 <laughs> I hate talking about hate <laughs> it. No, but I mean, it makes sense because you look at the trajectory of a career and it's not that they weren't good or you weren't good in it or whatever, but the amount of work that you put into these and then you're saying it's not necessarily visible because you're, you as the actor are not in control of what's on the screen.
1: Right. And so one of the things I got both from, from directing was I can have these projects where I'm sort of, you know, controlling what's being put into it, or, you know, I'm the center of the, all these collaborations, but also by doing that, I learned what it's like to be on the other side with a director. And so I learned how to work with a director. I learned how hard it is to be a director and you just want everybody on, you know, playing the same game that you're playing on the same page with you. And so as an actor, I could then go forward and from the get go, you know, day one of preparation, just be in sync with the director. What does she want? What's her vision? Cause if my vision's different, like, okay, either talk it out with her or if we're not on the same page, like maybe I shouldn't be doing this and that's fine. Like we just have different visions. Anyway, ask about Spider-Man. Like, I have this belief now, you know, it's sort of about life. It's not, it's not like a groundbreaking concept, but like, you know, everything, everything happens for a reason. And I can see it so clearly when it comes to like roles that I get or don't get, because in fact, the time that I was the most devastated in my career for not getting a role was this movie called Deuces Wild. It was, exec produced by Martin Scorsese. It was directed by the director of the Basketball Diaries, which I had loved. It was about, like, kind of New York, and, you know, it, it just felt like, you know, one of my favorite movies was Mean Streets. It just felt like, oh, this is the Mean Streets of my generation, or at least that's how it read on the paper. Yeah. And I went in, I think I went in for, like, three auditions to play the kind of the De Niro, Johnny Boyd character in that thing, And then they gave it to Brad Renfro. And Brad had, you know, it was no secret that Brad had been struggling a lot at that point. And so the director gave me a smaller part. And when I saw Brad, he just looked like he was in such bad shape. Brad later became a friend, but Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't believe they gave this guy. And he, but he had a name. Like I didn't, I didn't understand, you know, the concept of, Having to sell a movie and, you know, actors with you know, name value and all these things. I was so devastated. Well, cut to two years later. Like, they didn't release that movie for, like, over two years. Mm-hmm. Scorsese took his name off of it. And, like, it just was not very good. And they released it the same weekend as Spider-Man 1. Oh. Which at that time, broke right. the box office record right. for, you know, opening weekend, right. you know. And I think two people saw Deuces Wild. Right. And, like, it just showed me. It was like, James, you know, just chill. <laughs> just you chill. know, it all, it'll all it all work out. And so as far as, like, getting Spider-Man, yeah, that was also, not getting Spider-Man like that was devastating. But then I got along with Sam Raimi so well. He's like, hey, you want to, you know, do this other part? and it was a great experience i think you know i think it was probably what i needed at that time you know i just think of i also think it's like you think you know what you want you think like if i get that i'll be happy and it's like think of all the actors that kind of got what they wanted and then you know they spiral out into some crazy you know
0: well the way you handled it correct me if this is wrong was that so you have the first one in 2002 second one two or three years later now, you know, you're somebody people really know and it's out there and whatever. By 2006, though, you <laughs> did something that I think people couldn't understand and still somewhat can't. You go back to UCLA where you had left when you were trying to get right where you because were now getting. trying to get
1: away from school.
0: <laughs> right. So, right. So like the thing that you had. You got had, a
1: career, dude. What are you
0: doing? Now, Now once you have what you had left UCLA to do, you go back to UCLA. And, and let's just, I'm going to run off. This is over a period of years afterwards, just as a important side point before I ask you the question, just the things that you did simultaneously while acting and continuing your career. So go back to UCLA in 2006, graduate. Whatever two years. list
1: you're going to read down, like I bet you, you're not even capturing. No, anything. I'm sure it's, it's going to the iceberg, And there's like even more, like. but I
0: mean, it's insane, but it's also unbelievable in a, in a positive way. So then after graduating two years from UCLA, Four graduate programs simultaneously in New York, NYU for filmmaking, Columbia for fiction writing, Brooklyn College for fiction writing, plus in North Carolina, a low residency poetry program at Warren Wilson College. Then you go and pursue your PhD in English at Yale and go to RISD, as you mentioned, simultaneously. Then in 2009, you go and do this recurring character on General Hospital. In 2010, while working on Rise of the Planet of the Apes, you re-edit. Gus Van Zandt's movie, My Private Idaho, 2014, you went and did Broadway. I saw very, it was great, Of Mice and Men. Thank you. But the point, you know, then there's a million of these stories. Every time you've been profiled, they find somebody to say, you know, while we were getting drunk on the side of the set, we noticed James reading Ulysses or- I don't uh, know if anybody was
1: getting drunk Or, on
0: or the whatever, set. <laughs> not on the set. But, you know, like, while we're screwing around, we noticed James is reading the Iliad. Right. Or when, that was Freaks
1: and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks, That's okay.
0: When we're all in the makeup chairs, I see when, with a laptop, We say, James, what are you doing, writing a novel? And he said, actually, yes. <laughs> so there's all this stuff. And I just want to ask as a kind of general question about all this were you trying to prove something to yourself? Were you trying to prove something to somebody else? Or do you just have sort of this hunger to experience everything? What, four
1: simultaneous degrees? Yeah, well, (laughs) I know this, it's it's ridiculous in hindsight. Look, if something feels good to me, I usually just (laughs) go for it. (laughs) And going back to school was so refreshing. You know, it was like, a new thing with its own set of rewards. It was like, and then, you know, I was back at UCLA, but it was like, oh, I'm here for me. This isn't like, I'm doing this to, you know, get a career. It's like, I'm here for me. Mm -hmm. And look at all these amazing professors. And now maybe that doesn't sound appealing to a lot of people, but to me, it was like the equivalent of getting to work with, Danny Boyle and Gus Van Sant and, you know, whomever, like having these professors. And it was like, uh, and I can just have more of this. I'll just take more and more and more. And then when you go to grad school, you don't have to take any GEs. You get to just focus on exactly what you want to focus on. And this is how I reasoned it at the time. If I'm going to go back to grad school, I'm probably going to have to work on fewer movies. Mm -hmm. So this will be my time. This will be my school time. Most of my classmates in grad school, had to have a job mm-hmm. to support themselves. I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I'll have this extra time. So I've got multiple interests. Why don't I just fill that time with with these things? And I also thought, I had this crazy thing in the back of my head. One of the things I took away from Annapolis is when we went to visit the Naval Academy, they said, we give the midshipmen more than they can handle. We don't give them enough time to shower. <laughs> we, we overload them with homework and all this stuff so that if they're, Ever in the middle of a, a battle situation, mm-hmm. they will be able to perform under, you know, great stress. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I held on to that, mm-hmm. but I sort of held that was like the mentality I yeah. I had. And so it was just like, yeah, I'll pile on more. And and that that also like I learned like when I I was obsessive when I was at acting school. It was like that was my reputation, just like doing it, you know, just throwing myself into it because I was working at McDonald's, so yeah. it was like, man, I want this thing to work, yeah. and so I kind of took took on that sort of discipline and, and all encompassing kind of approach, and so that's sort of how it started. And I did get to eventually, I did get to a place where I am directing things that I'm really proud of. I, I I'm working, you know, I get to direct for David Simon's yeah. shows, and you know, and these kinds of things, so. I think it did pay off, but the lesson I have to keep learning is, like, balance, you know, balance, James. Because
0: there's cost-benefit.
1: After a while, that sort of workaholism Mm -hmm. has diminishing returns and that there's a different kind of discipline that is more focused on fewer things, you know, and, and a deeper dive into more select things.
0: But I just want to note for anybody who hears this and they're like, well, there mu- it must have been, you know, we're happy to have him because he's a famous guy and he's just gonna, we're not gonna hold him to the same expectations as others there and he can come in and out as he please. And I think that was sort of suggested when I remember there was this whole they sent around a, somebody found a photo of you in a lecture hall, sleeping. Which was actually... This is where I want
1: to go. A bonus lecture. Like, I was doing more. That was for the art department. I wasn't even in the art department at Columbia. So you
0: were already doing more than you had to do. So, (laughs) God forbid, nobody else has ever fallen asleep in, in a lecture. But anyway, beyond that, though, there was a Yale professor of yours. John Williams. He said, you arranged in advance. You were doing Oz the Great and Powerful in Detroit, and... It was totally fine with him. He understood you guys are going to instead have your office hours via video conference or whatever, him and another student, right? So he said that you never missed, you missed, I think, one and were, it was, you know, very apologetic about it, but you did not even miss the week that your father suddenly passed away. He said that you did the conference call even that week. So, I mean, there was no bullshit with, with this stuff.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, what that says to me is, I mean, there was a lot. uh, There were a lot of motivating things. Part of it, one of the reasons I think I did overcompensate, you know, maybe, and I maybe one of the reasons, in addition to, yeah, I was interested in all these subjects, and you know, in grad school, I got even more of my heroes and my novelist heroes as teachers and and all this. But there was also a need to show, like, oh, I'm serious about this, because I thought, oh, here comes the, you know, I'll be the actor going in there, and there, you know, and here are these people paying $40,000 for this degree that, you know, writing novels probably isn't going to pay back, and, or $40,000 a year, so 80000 or or $100,000 for the whole thing, and man, you know, resentment can sort of fly in those rooms, I think, and then, and I just thought, wow, it's going to be really focused on me. So I better, I better show that I'm I'm serious about this. But when you bring up, because I don't even, I mean, my my father did pass when I was doing Oz, the Great and Powerful. But when you remind me that i was still doing that work, it was it's like there was a part of me that was like avoiding life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's how I learned at a very young age. To cope with the world Mm -hmm. so at 17 being you know still a shy awkward kid who did not know how to deal with the world other than getting in trouble and i couldn't do that anymore acting became my you know salvation and two three years after that i was on freaks and geeks so it was like this is the answer just just put my nose down and throw myself into this stuff and that's how I'll survive the world. You know, there was a lot of that. And I can see, you know, going through one of the, you know, saddest events a, a, a guy can go through Absolutely, and throwing myself into work and that way doing Oz and my Yale homework. It's amazing. It's I good, uh, was probably running from a lot of stuff. Sure.
0: Well, it sounds like in terms of the side of your life where you were still acting, you you had a kind of epiphany about how to better approach things when you reunited with Judd and Seth. I think the first thing was in 07 with Knocked Up, which was more like a like a cameo as yourself. But then the next year with Pineapple Express. And you I'm going to read back a quote and then just ask if you can Mm -hmm. comment on this. You said this about Pineapple Express. Quote, what I'd been doing before wasn't working. It was making the people I work with miserable. It was making me miserable. I realized okay, I'm going to go with the flow. These are people that I trust. They're the funniest people around. And I'm only going to be better if I just go with what they're doing. And then I realized that's how I should do everything. So prior to that, you had been a finicky guy to work with on. So what you're saying is that kind of got you to just realize that if you relax on a movie set, you can have equally good results. Better results. Better results.
1: I think like on Freaks and Geeks, you know, I had this idea that uh, I was all about you know it was all about James Dean and Marlon Brando you know even though i hadn't played uh, dean yet but i just thought like reality and spontaneity was you know the most valuable thing in acting and and i didn't really understand like improv and how improv sort of worked and so i would just throw lines at the actors even when i was off camera and after a while they just got really sick of it and it was just it was stupid on my part it was just like not helpful mm-hmm. And, you know, just stuff like that. And and Judd and Seth, it's funny, Judd and Seth have been so instrumental in my career. It's like they come around. Every time I have like this transition in my career, they're there, yeah. strangely. So Freaks and Geeks, mm-hmm. boom, I'm introduced to what it is to work on a quality project. Mm-hmm. And then I went through, you know, my weird phase of doing these dramatic movies that maybe I shouldn't have done. And I was sort of at this low point and there was the, there was that transition period when I was sort of going back to school and I just knew I needed to change things. And I ran into Judd at the Austin film festival and he had just done knocked up and he's like, I don't know why you left the comedy world, dude. And cause I had always thought I was a, dr- you know, going to have a dramatic career and I met them when i was twenty twenty one, and freaks and geeks without me knowing it really kind of opened up this other thing and so when i met ran into judd again because i hadn't really worked with him in years and i hadn't talked to seth in years mm-hmm. it sort of reopened that thing and it was like yeah james you kind of have a facility for that thing like maybe you should be open for to that and i at that moment i was ready i was ready to try anything it was like yeah my idea of what i am maybe isn't Working And so I was like, yeah, Judd, I'm, I'm down, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so he's like, I think you should do, I'm going to do this movie with Seth, Knocked Up, and then you two should do a movie together. I was like, okay. It wasn't, we didn't even have Pineapple, like it had been written, but there was a, a yeah. few things that we were talking about. And my cameo, Knocked Up, was actually sort of a quote-unquote audition for the studio because they didn't think I could do comedy. <laughs> and so Judd was like, all right, I'll put you in here and yeah. show them. To prove it, and then also, I thought I was going to play Seth's role in in Pineapple Express, and I remember having the f- lunch with them after reading the script for the first time, and I sort of sheepishly said, uh, "Yeah, I love it. I just wish I uh, uh, wish I could play Seth's role." And they were like,
2: "We were just talking about that. <laughs> like,
1: we should switch roles." And um, and so I played Saul. Anyway, it's weird. It's it's a weird thing that. Pineapple Express was the movie that really taught me how to be a kind of collaborative and team player right. as an actor, but it did, and it really changed my whole career. I mean, that year I did Pineapple Express and Milk, Milk, and it was like, you know, that those two kind of poles, I think in a lot of ways, shaped my career since then. Well, is it
0: just a coincidence that... Two years after those both came out, meaning it was probably a year later that you actually made it, you did, I think, one of the greatest performances I've ever seen of anybody, forget about just you, with 127 Hours. I remember being at the premiere in Toronto. Oh, wow. And-
1: I think we had three people pass out in that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it was
0: (laughs) great. I think the moment when you sever the artery or whatever and it makes the buzzing sound is what puts- people over the top if i
1: recall isn't but that so crazy that it's cr- like that is like an undeniable psychosomatic reaction yeah. that happened every time yeah. we screened that movie it's just like wow that movie has an undeniable effect on people <laughs> crazy <laughs> think, no
0: but i mean for you you did as i read here five weeks 12 hours a day and it's essentially just you and Physically grueling, it's crazy thing, and you end up with your first Oscar nomination. So, if somebody is going back to put the piece together, you would say that maybe that wouldn't have been as possible had there not been this sort of epiphany with Pineapple Express.
1: For sure, that was really just you know learning how to be a, a team player. And when I sign on to a movie, to not think about my, you know, and I and I really got this from you know then being on the other side and being a director like. Not thinking about it, like, and this is how I try to look at life now, too. Like, not like, what can I get out of it? It's like, what can I add to? How can I add to this? How can I add to this? And the producer, Christian Colson, said, like, after we were done, it was like, you and Danny, you you pulled the best out of each other. And it was like, that it was going to be a challenge was not, you know, a, a secret to anybody. Right, right from the screenwriter who Simon Beaufoy, who like didn't want to do it when Danny originally pitched the idea and Sam was like, I don't know my way in. And then Danny had to go and like show him. And then they figured out like, Oh, that video camera was like the perfect device to have this character, you know, talk about his feelings. And, you know, the DPs, Danny had two DPs on there, Anthony Domantle and and Kiki Chadiak and how they had to figure out how to shoot this movie. You know, they're, everybody's used from me to Danny, to the DPs, that everyone is used to having multiple characters in a movie. What do you do when one? How do you shoot it? What do you cut away from and cut to when you have one character and everybody kind of learned, but Danny was the perfect leader of, you know, this sort of improvisatory director. And we kind of figured it out as we went along. And it was like, it happened early on. I'm like, we did this take where I had to kind of, I was newly trapped and I had to pull myself out or try to pull myself out with brute strength. And Danny's just was like, don't stop till I say cut. I bashed myself against the rock. I had bruises and everything. And he's like, when he finally said cut, it was like 21 minutes long. And he's, and he's like, I'm going to probably use 90 seconds of that, but I'll give you the 21 minutes. You can get stoned and watch it with your friends. But like we learn that's how we're going to do the movie. That's how it's going to be most authentic because then you have 21 minutes yeah. of me getting actually exhausted. It's like no faking. It's no, you know, like, all right, we'll set up this shot. You're kind of tired here, and then we'll set up this other shot. Now you're really tired. It's like, no. Danny now has the material of me getting progressively exhausted, frustrated, emotional there, and it's like authentic. Mm-hmm. And that's how we learned to do the whole movie. And he figured that out as we were doing it. And it was just just an amazing, amazing thing to me that it was sort of like, actually everything that I had been striving for as a young actor, uh, in regards to authenticity, yeah. because now here's a, a chance to, you know, actually live under imaginary circumstances to go through everything Aaron Ralston went through short of, you know, dehydrating myself and cutting my own arm off. But like, actually have to try and do all of those things.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's unbelievable. I yeah. hope people will go back and rewatch it. And just as a quick aside before we move on, I have to ask you, so you're one of the few people who on the same night they were nominated for an Oscar, hosted the Oscars. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about it. Well, just, just very I can really, tell you
1: how many people have been in that position. There's been eight. David Niven. And, and, those, of, yeah. and David Niven is the only one of the those one. eight who ever won yeah. the night that he hosted. Uh, yeah. Well-
0: how did it come about and and how would you assess how it turned out? You and Anne Hathaway.
1: Like every situation, in this one more than most, there are a lot of contributing factors for my me saying yes when Bruce Cohen, the producer, asked me to, to host. But I'd say the, the main two or three at the time, the way I, I reasoned it at the time, were A, I was in sort of my experimental mode. Mm-hmm. I had recently gone on General Hospital. And it had been a really cool experience. And I got actually a lot of very interesting response from the press. Like, this is a interesting project. People were baffled. Like, what is going on here? And, and it was actually really satisfying, you know, because they shoot, you know, five episodes a week. You know, you could start writing in response to, you know, the feedback from critics and the audiences and that kind of thing. And so it became this very meta thing, very satisfying thing.
0: I just want to quickly inject now that I think about it, I didn't even have this when I was writing the questions, but it actually is consistent with you taking on so much stuff in other forms. Like what is the most overwhelming thing somebody can do to themselves as an actor? The volume of stuff that soap opera people have to do every day. The pages turn around, no time.
1: It's a funny, it's actually, there's a funny story about that. Like when I did that, I was in school in New York. I didn't have school on Fridays. So the initial run on General Hospital, I flew in on three consecutive Fridays and they called them, on General Hospital, they called them Franco Fridays (laughs) because I would fly in, land at about 10, go to set and we'd shoot till about 2 a.m. And they just did all of my scenes on those days. We shot twenty one episodes worth of material for my character on those three Fridays. I was doing eighty to ninety pages a day. That's a movie That's, script yeah. worth of, you know, material. How I learned to, you know, memorize very quickly. I had a, a woman, Samantha, who eventually became my assistant. Yeah. She became a very good friend of mine as well. And she and I would just run the lines, run the lines, run the lines, and then go shoot. And they don't just do one take per shot on the soap opera. They have four cameras going. So it's one take per scene. So I would learn the lines, learn the run them, Sam. And then, okay, they roll it, shoot, done, next, and do it like that. Okay, so I got very good at Brilliant. memorizing lines. On 127 Hours, I met with Danny Boyle. When I first met with him, I guess I just had a weird attitude. Like, I was, I loved his movies, mm-hmm. but I guess I was just in this weird mode where I was like, I don't know, sort of nonchalant or something. Like, yeah, this sounds cool. I'll do it, whatever. Yeah. And I guess I just didn't show enough enthusiasm for his liking. And so he called my agent. He's like, yeah, I don't think the guy's that into it. So <laughs> then... Like a week or two later, they kept fighting. They're like, Danny, come on. He he really wants to do it. And, and at that point, he's like, well, he's going to have to read. Okay. And I was like, okay. So I flew in. He was in LA at that point. I flew into LA. I didn't have any sides or anything. And he's like, he handed me the, was the speech. It was like the, one of the big speeches I say to my parents. It's like a page and a half. He's like, go in the other room. It was like nine or 10 at night this little office on Fox lot, and he's like, go in the other room and take whatever, you know, take an hour or whatever and memorize this thing. I think I went in there. I was like 10, 15 (laughs) minutes later, I came back because I had done General Hospital. I came back, did the thing. We did one take, and and he's like, all right, you got it. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. But anyway, so I had done that, you know, kind of quote unquote experiment on General Hospital. So that was sort of in the back of my mind. And then when Bruce Cohen asked me to host Oscars, I was sort of like, oh, maybe it'll sort of be like that. I'll be going into you know this place where I'm sort of not expected. I never wanted to be the host of the Oscars. I never <laughs> dreamed about that. It's just not my thing. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. I'm not one of those guys. And so I was sort of thinking of it that way. And then I'll tell you what, honestly, I look at the, this second factor in two different ways now. At the time I thought, this sort of Oscar race thing is, is really weird to me. Mm-hmm. I went and did the research and it was like, oh, only eight times has the host been nominated when, when he hosted. And of those eight, only one has won, David niven So if I do that, I'll sort of be saying to the to the world mm-hmm. and to myself that I don't want to participate. Now I look at it and it was like, yeah, that's exactly what was going on. But it was just, it was again fear. I was just running, you know. It was like it's really scary like you know, instead of just going along for the ride and enjoying it. Five people in the whole world up for this thing, you know? Just enjoying that and being grateful for that. Like I had to defend myself. I was scared. It was just I was just scared. I was scared of I don't know being rejected, scared of all the weird pressure, just all of that. And so that was part of it as well. And then as far as the actual broadcast went, like.
0: It's never as bad as
1: people remember or whatever. I was not, I was definitely not trying to sabotage it in any way.
0: Well, an interesting point though, isn't it? People watch Pineapple Express where you're playing a (laughs) stoner and they say, oh, Franco must be a stoner. Also, they listen the way you talk and. You like I, the only thing that physically, I, unfortunately, I share commas you is we have uh, squinty eyes. People say that. People think that. <laughs> so the the thing, though, is just that people assume, I think, that you sometimes are a stoner and including on that night. And yet, unless this has changed, I read not since high school. So yeah. I think in people who maybe had not been used to seeing you as you mm. looked at this and mm. said, this guy is, is high. I mean, is that possible?
1: That I, that they thought that they thought that was. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I can. I can, understand why, no, I can you know. understand why they thought that. No, I can understand why yeah. they thought that. Here is the thing: when Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin did it, they were awesome. Steve Martin is a great writer, great performer at that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I know because my buddy Adam Shankman produced that yeah. that Oscars. Martin put so much work into preparing for that. Mm-hmm. He wrote for it. He, you know. It meant a lot to him. I had the attitude of, I'm going to do it just like General Hospital. General Hospital asked me like, if I wanted to write. They're like, you can do whatever, dude. You want to yeah, be on General right. Hospital? <laughs> you can write. You can do whatever. Right. I was like, no, I want the General Hospital makeover. I want I want to just see what you guys do. Right. That was sort of my attitude at the Oscars. I was like, I don't want... I don't... Give, me, give me
0: what I have to do. Yeah, yeah,
1: I'll do what you guys give me. Judd sort of helped a little bit with that. He said... No, James, you can't. <laughs> you can't do it that way. Like, by the time, you know, we were about to go on, like, you know, we'd been rehearsing the live show, like, because the pre tape stuff wasn't bad. Because they could sort of, you know, they could edit it. During the, the show, I just knew it was just sort of like, ah, this just I don't know how to do this.
0: Well, there's some major energy differences
1: well, like, between you, know, you and him. Yeah, I mean, it was like. Or even like, I remember one thing Judd said to me, he's like, because he had written for a lot of guys that yeah. had done, yeah. you know, these, these shows. He's like, you need a second act bit. You need some big thing. I was actually going to come, I came out as Marilyn, which was so lame, but it was going to be me singing the the Cher song that was like, had won the Golden Globe and we'd been practicing it. And then when it didn't get nominated, they kind of pulled it or maybe they pulled it because I was just a bad singer. But it wasn't like it wasn't like it was supposed to be good. Anyway, that was like a performance. It was a thing coming out as Marilyn was uh, anyway. <laughs> so anyway, I guess I guess in my mind, I, you know, the low energy, it was really just me trying to play kind of the straight man. Yeah, And maybe I just played it way too straight.
0: You'll just have to. Just, you'll go back just as a nominee next time. That'll be <laughs> it. all right. As we rapidly approach the present, just don't want to gloss over two others if we can, just a thought or two. First of all, you know most people follow an Oscar nomination, and there it's very strategic and it's coherent. You can see what they're doing. I could see it here. It doesn't mean they weren't awesome results, but let's start. Spring Breakers, 2012. A white man, Corn Road, grill wearing drug dealer named Alien. You've stayed in character throughout the shoot. You've said he was your favorite character you've ever played. Maybe Tommy's displaced that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But let's hit that one first.
1: Well, you were really behind that one. And uh, A-24 put that out, so I have a really great history with with A24, who's now putting out I'm the Disaster Artist. That was just an incredible experience all around. I just, you know, I was a huge Harmony Corinne fan. We had talked about doing something together before he even had the concept for Spring Breakers. By the time we started shooting that, we'd been talking about it for, I think, two years. And he sort of included me on every phase. He gave me the outline and then script. And then, you know, and then it was like a year of him sending me videos and interviews of, you know, different people as inspiration. And then going out to Florida months before he introduced me to like locals, this one guy in particular named Dangerous, who was a big, you know, inspiration for the character and just, and then the way Harmony works is like, at least on that one, he was like, you know, I see the script as a blueprint. And so it was very immersive and we just found a lot, you know, both from actual locations that we used that, you know, changed it. Like just for example, there's that scene in the pool hall, like in the script that was like, we were at a bowling alley and then he found this crazy pool hall. We used all the, regular patrons of that place and the scenes and just sort of rolling with it. And just, it was so exciting and electric, you know, to work that way. And so many of the things in there, like he'd just be like out of the blue, like oh, James, why don't you say a poem right now? And <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> or like, I'm at the piano, like James, why don't you come up with a song? Like I don't play piano, so it's just like four little chickies, you know, just come, like, it was just so exciting. But then to be able, I, I feel like Harmony and I just really connected on that thing because Harmony is the master at like these weird, you know, capturing these weird underworlds and odd characters. And I think, if anything, one of my, one of the things that I'm good at, and I think one of the things that people have been saying in, with the disaster artist is I can bring... Out the humanity and the emotional grounding in the weirdest, the weirdest characters, <laughs> and so I think that's how I I really that's contributed to Spring Breakers.
0: Yeah, the the second of the of the two is the interview, and I you're back with Seth. Yeah, and just to remind people, you guys are playing guys that are trying to assassinate Kim Jong Un, and I think now it's. I was just talking with somebody that what are the two biggest stories of the 21st century in Hollywood, and I think what we're going through right now with the sex abuse stuff is certainly one of them. And I think the other one is probably the Sony hacking and how people did or did not respond at all to it in this town. And that was the result apparently of them taking offense to the interview. So as somebody who was involved with the movie and (laughs) at the center center of center of all this, yeah, just, I mean, what, what stands out there?
1: I love that movie. I love working with Seth. It's funny, you know, people now will say to me in this weird tone of voice like they're, I don't know, going out on a limb or something, but they're like, yeah, I actually think that's a funny movie. Like it is a great yeah. movie. Yeah. the 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 crazy phenomenon is that I think it was really hard for people to actually see what that movie was yeah. because, you know, we got pulled from the theaters. I remember being home for the holidays. I would be at the hotel with my grandma and we'd have breakfast every morning. And there'd be the news and the interview would come on. There, Obama would come on and be like, I love, you know, it was my one moment connecting with Obama. He's like, I love Seth Rogen. I love James Flacco. <laughs> but, like, you know, it was this thing. And and then, like, Newt Gingrich and Mitt Romney are saying, like, you need to see this movie. It's your patriotic duty and all this stuff. So when people finally saw yeah. it, I think they're like, what? This is my patriotic duty? What, <laughs> you know, dick jokes and you whatever. You brought us together. <laughs> and, yes. It was insane. And and after a while, you know, I don't think we were going out on a limb sort of pointing out like how bad things are, you know, and, and, and how like this stuff is insane over there. I don't I, it wasn't like I mean, we we're doing what comedy does best, yeah. pointing out how crazy our world is. This is crazy and not even having to make up anything like just talking about what is actually happening. I love that concept in that sense you know, I'm not trying to say like it was as well made as a Kubrick film or something. But in that in the sense of like, pointing out the insanity of our world, it's it was in the tradition of Dr. Strangelove. And so I was proud to be a part of that. That's great.
0: 2017 has been very interesting, because you've said you kind of have gotten past that period of workaholism and really focused on the things that you're doing. And that includes the before mentioned David Simon collaboration the deuce which is amazing and you're playing two characters and directing two of the eight episodes and you know it doesn't just because you've gotten work a under control you're not not working very hard but that's uh so there, there's that and we will talk more about that in the future hopefully but the disaster artist which to you know fill people in film about the room a 2003 cult film and wacky guy who made it Tommy Wiseau this is what people are focused on at the moment because it It kind of exploded out of South by Southwest, finished, I think, runner-up for the Audience Award at Toronto International Film Festival, and people are now in town getting to see it. And it's something pretty unbelievable. I was not from out here, and I had never seen The Room. So for the first hour that I was watching this movie, I was like, I was enjoying it, but I thought, what the hell is this? I had no context. And then the more it goes along, especially at the end, where we see what you were doing, my mind was blown. So I just want to ask... Were you one of these many, you know, there's a cult of people that are obsessed with the room. Were you one of them? And then how did it come about that you would pursue the idea of making it and get all your your brother, his wife, your close friend, Seth Rogen, again, all, all these people together for what, you know, must've been a pretty unusual thing.
1: I had been in LA when The Room came out in 2003. Tommy had put up these billboards with a phone number on it. And, I, and his face with this lazy eyelid and uh, just staring, glaring at you and said The Room. And I just had no idea what it was. I just I just thought it was some weird L.A. thing or a cult or something like that. I mean, <laughs> what, you know, Billboard has a phone number. Right. We have since put up our own Disaster Artist Billboard with a phone number. And there's a phone and Tommy answers it if you call sometimes. Yes. So here it is right here. He has it with him. Uh, <laughs> oh wait Tommy's here. <laughs> Hello, Tommy Wazo. Hello. I wish I could put them on speaker. <laughs> hi, who this? Benicio? Oh hi Benicio. How are you doing?
0: Good.
1: <laughs> How are you? Yeah, good, good. What going on man? Nothing. Nothing? Just hanging out? Yeah. <laughs> oh good, good. You uh you saw Billboard, you uh called number or what? Yeah. Well good man. Well you see the room or what? Why you think you love the room? Yeah. Ah, uh, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> you sound like you're a very shy guy, very relaxed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well have a good time. Don't hurt yourself.
0: <laughs> so this is amazing because this is to give people an idea, this is the guy that James is playing, and apparently stayed in character as even when the you know, directing yeah. other actors. Yeah.
1: So all I knew was kind of the billboard what was happening at the time is is that was this following for the room building at the sunset 5 that when you know tommy intended it to be this drama he put on the original poster tennessee william level drama he put it out in theaters he paid for everything he yeah. paid over 6 million dollars for this thing he distributed it he kept it in theaters for 2 weeks to qualify for the academy awards right. <laughs> It made i think 1800 dollars its first weekend but he had enough sort of wherewithal to convince Sunset 5 to play it on the weekends at midnight some USC students went caught on invited their friends and it just kept building over years eventually people like Jonah Hill Michael Sarah, Paul Rudd caught on and it became a thing but I just was never I guess was not part of it right. I, I would go to the Sunset 5 all the time right. I'd see the weird poster right. I, it just didn't right. register it didn't <laughs> penetrate for some right. reason I just see that poster, and I'd be like I don't want to see that. Right. That looks weird. And then I didn't really get in on board until the book came out about four or five years ago. We were shooting the interview in Vancouver. Right, right. Somebody pointed the book out to me. I saw it on the New York Times book review. I, I read it before I was halfway through. I just I knew I was like, yes, <laughs> I loved Hollywood stories, right. but I could see I could see in it like, oh man. This is unlike any Hollywood story ever. It's so wacky. This is a character that's unlike any character I've ever seen. But underneath, it's universal. Everybody, you know, and I wrote a little thing about it yeah. for Vice at the time. And I and my my ending line was Tommy Wiseo moi, because he's every outsider with a dream. Everybody that comes to LA has to, you know, unless you're like Michael Douglas or something. Right. Like has to sort of start at the bottom. I mean, I'm sure Michael Douglas even had his own thing. Mm-hmm. Like, oh man, I am in mean, Kurt Shadow, you know, whatever. <laughs> and so I thought, man, it's got everything. And then boom, here comes, you know, Seth around again, you know, to, to sort of, I didn't know it at the time, but the sort of smarter side of my brain was like, you know what, you've been doing a lot of these indie movies, you know, on your own, with your own company. Why don't you get Seth to help you? Cause he knows how to, work with the studio, and still make the movies that he wants to make. And so I gave it to Seth and Evan and Point Grey, and and they helped me develop it and produce it. And, and, and it really, that and, and working with David Simon really helped me grow as a director because I had very strong producers to show me sort of how to be an adult director, how to be a responsible director, how to really not spread my energy you know and time across many projects but to focus on you know one project
0: it's so much fun that ending is unbelievable how accurately you nailed it and I can't recommend it enough and I think that hopefully the point of this conversation is that aside from being a, a treat is that people can get a sense of you know these are not conventional choices and the range of stuff is unbelievable and I think Deserves to be appreciated. So thank you so much for Thanks, doing man. this. That was I really awesome. appreciate it. Thank us. you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at THR.com slash The Race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
2: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.